So this morning, um, first of all, a lot of you, when you found out Tristan and I got a house, a lot of you immediately were like, let us know like how we can help. When we were moving into our first place that we were renting here, you guys did the same thing. And I always have felt so bad because we are very bad at asking for help. <laughs> and oftentimes we, we do it and you guys are like, let us know when you need, need help. And we're like, oh, we're done already. <laughs> And I've always felt so bad, and, I, and I, I don't know if I've said it enough, but thank you guys so much for always offering to help and, and supporting us in any way that we've needed as we've made these transitions, um, and, and I greatly appreciate it, and I hope you guys know that. Uh, but we have been in our house for about a month and a half now, right? Yeah, that's crazy. Um, our dog has already dug way too many holes in our yard, and, and uh, one of the things that we have discovered pretty quickly is that there are things you have to work on in a house that you own. There, <laughs> there is no landlord that you can call when you look at the uh, outlet and it is about to fall into the wall. Uh, that falls on you now. <laughs> Thankfully, I've got church family that have been able to answer my panicked phone calls when I'm like, I don't know what to do and I'm terrified of electricity. Um, I've had people go like, calm down, I'll come over, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's been awesome. But one thing about a house is that there tends to be work with it. And so this morning, I've got a hypothetical situation for you. Again, hypothetical. I, don't, I hope I don't panic you with this. Let's say instead of the house that Tristan and I bought, um, let's say we find a fixer-upper. And by fixer-upper, I mean really fixer-upper. Like let's say it needs, uh, the walls need to be painted. Um, the carpet could use replacing or at least a lot of shampooing, and then the foundation is crumbling and about to collapse. Let's say that. And again, this is hypothetical. Don't freak out. This is not the house we're actually living in. But if we actually go through and buy this house, what should come first that we need to fix? Foundation, right? Like, I, I, I highly doubted any of you would be like, obviously, you need to paint those walls. Right? <laughs> What'd you say, David? Nothing? Okay. <laughs> Obviously, it makes no sense if someone's wasting their time painting walls of a house that's going to crumble in on itself, right? It makes no sense for someone to work on something superficial if the foundation is weak. So the reason why I bring this up is because uh, today we're going to be looking at what is foundational for us as the people of God. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah. Pastor Andy started it just this last week, and uh, I'm, I'm super excited. I love it when we get to go into the Old Testament because we get to see how God has been continually faithful and how that continues on through us as well. So in Nehemiah, we looked at the first part, and Nehemiah finds out that uh, they're back in Jerusalem. They have built the temple, but there are no walls, and this bothers him. It says that he is wailing and praying and he talks to God and he asks him, what should we do? And God has obviously placed it on Nehemiah's heart to do something about this. And he opens the doors to where he goes to the king and the king's like, whatever you want, right? Get it done. And Pastor Andy's point was like, uh, when God places something on your heart, that's usually not God saying like, man, it'd be really cool if someone did something about this, right? But instead, it's what are you going to do about it? And it's cool how we get to see how faithful he is when he opens those doors in ways we don't expect. 
Now today we're taking a pause in Nehemiah since Pastor Andy's not here and we're going to look at the book before Nehemiah. We're going to be in the book of Ezra. And Ezra is actually the book that shows the beginning of the people returning to Jerusalem, leaving their exile and going back home. And before we look at our text today, I want to clarify something. There's a lot of temptation to look at the Old Testament and be like, do we really need that as the church? We've got the new, new part, right? News better than the old, isn't it? Or to look at it and be like, well, we're on this side of the cross, so that doesn't really matter as much. But like what we've said before, this tells us a lot about the God that we serve and how his plan has been set from the very beginning and how he has fulfilled it through Jesus. And so it's because of this temptation we often avoid a lot of the Old Testament because we think it's, well, old. <laughs> we think it's outdated. We think that it doesn't really apply to us. As an example, uh, we can often look at like, uh, one of my favorite examples is in, I believe it's Second Kings. Um, Elisha is chopping down wood with some of his friends and this guy's axe head falls off and goes into the water. And he says, oh no, it's borrowed. And then Elijah takes a stick and throws it in there and the axe head floats and then they just move on. I remember when I read that for the first time, I was like, I don't know what to do with that. It's like, what is that? It, if you lose your stuff, God will help you find it? Is that the application for that story there? Like, it's really hard to see the significance, but we have to follow a rule. And this rule is, the Bible is for us, but it's not about us. Especially when we read our Old Testament, we are reading history. We are reading the stories that happened to real people. Real moments where God stepped in. The example I think of, I warned my little brother like five seconds ago, that not five seconds, like five minutes ago that I was going to talk about him today. Um, there was a, a moment where my family found old family videos when me and my older siblings were like from three to six. And we, we were watching him and having a fun time. And Caden, who was about four at the time, he comes up and he is upset. He is like, where am I in these videos? And we didn't have the heart to tell him, like, I think because I was the annoyed, like, just barely older brother, I was like, you weren't born yet. And then my family lovingly was like, oh, no, you're in here. See, oh, you dove behind the couch. And he, he was placated by that. He's like, all right, cool. I was in there. I, I'm just behind the couch, right? Sometimes we have that approach to Old Testament where we look at it and we're like, why can't I just take something from this? Like, what's in this for me? But we have to submit to the fact that this is not uh, a letter to us specifically. This is history. These are real moments happening to real people. And we just have to sit and watch. And we can learn through the choices. We can learn through the results of these stories. But when we're quick to be like, all right, I can take this and run, we often miss out on so much. So remember the rule. The Bible is for us, but it's not always about us. Can we agree with that this morning? All right. See, God has something we can learn from these stories in history. But we're not the main point. That's the rule. So Pastor Andy shared a bit of the background already of what's going on here. We're going to briefly rehash it. The people of God are being allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And this is after 70 years of exile, after the southern kingdom was uh, vanquished. They were conquered. 
And the city was destroyed. The old temple was destroyed. If we look at the end of the book of Joshua, we see that he addresses the people. This is after they've conquered the land of Canaan. They have gotten the promised land. And uh, they've divvied up the land to all the people. And he says, now you have a choice. You can worship the gods of the land. You can worship the gods of your ancestors. Or you can worship the one true God. And this is where we get the famous verse, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, you have a choice. Either serve the God that has been faithful to you, that has delivered you out of Egypt, and to seek him always, or forsake him. And you'll face consequences. And what's funny is the people of God, they're like, oh, of course, of course we're going to follow God. He's been nothing but good to us. And Joshua's immediate response is, no, you won't. That's kind of harsh. But here Joshua has led these people through battle. He's seen how flaky they are on commitment to God. And he says, you will rebel. And God will not tolerate that. He says, eventually, it'll lead to your destruction. That God has been good, nothing but good to you. But since you forsake him, you will end up being forsaken. You will end up being conquered and taken away. But that's not where it ends. Actually, Jeremiah 29, 10, right before the favorite verse of, for I know the plans I have for you. He says, in 70 years after you've been captured, my temple will be rebuilt and my people will return. That even though God knew his people were going to be unfaithful, he had a plan to restore them. Not only that, what's pretty cool, we're going to look at the beginning of Ezra. I'm not going to have verses up here today because we're going to be kind of bouncing around the book of Ezra. But I will be reading them out loud for everyone here. But the beginning of Ezra, it says this, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. So this is Cyrus, the king of Persia. Not part of the people of God. Not one who worships God, but one who is used by God to fulfill God's plans. And what's cool about this is that even this has been predicted in the word of God. If you look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, it says, The Lord who says to Cyrus, and as Isaiah is writing this, he's like, cool, don't know who that is. My shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasure. And says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt. And of the temple, its foundation will be laid. This whole story shows how God has been faithful to his people even when they have been disobedient. He has faithfully planned redemption for them. Even though he knew they would rebel against him. As people have put their faith in Jesus, this reassures us that he is faithful in fulfilling his plans. When Jesus says, I will return, we know it will be true. We can easily apply this to our context because Jesus has said he will return. God told his people, even though they were going to be conquered, they would be released 70 years later and that they would rebuild 
and it happened. We are going to look at that very briefly today. As his people returned to the land God gave them, the first thing they were told to build, their first priority was to build the walls. Actually, no, that's not yet. That's Nehemiah. It was to build a barracks for a mighty army. Actually, no, that's wrong. Their first priority was rebuilding the temple. And to our world today, that seems very backwards. Why would you build a temple when there are no walls? Why would you build something that is at risk of being attacked again? You see, the temple was not just a religious meeting center. It was known as the house of the Lord, the place where God's presence dwelt among his people. The people of God are meant to live with his presence at the center of their lives. He must be our foundation. In fact, the Israelites understood this well because the whole reason they were in exile was because they forsaked him. They looked to other gods. They looked at the nations around them and were like, I kind of like that too. They stopped obeying him as the one true God of their lives. The book of Ezra shows us the extent to which the people of God are to pursue God's presence in their lives. They are addressing the foundation before they work on anything else. They're skipping the painting until they work on that foundation. We're going to see how they respond to discouragement, persecution, and their own disobedience by seeking the presence of God. So as the people of God begin the task of rebuilding, they're led by a man named Zerubbabel. That's kind of a fun name to see. There's a lot of bees in that name. We'll just say that. Um, actually, what's weird about this book is that Ezra doesn't show up until about halfway through. But Zerubbabel, I can see I'm tripping myself up now. Zerubbabel is bringing the people to come and build the temple. Ezra comes and teaches later. And the people are getting to see God's temple being rebuilt in front of their eyes. This is an awesome opportunity. They have been exiled. Their identity as the people of God has been stripped away as they are a people in a foreign land. People in Babylon. People in Persia. Without a place to call their own. They are getting to rebuild from the ashes. And they see that God's temple is being built the new generation that never got to see the old temple, they are excited. They are singing psalms. They are praising God. But then it says that those who saw the original temple, when it was destroyed, it says that they were weeping because it wasn't like it used to be. This is what it says, Ezra three twelve through 13. But many of the older priests, the Levites and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shouting from that of weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. The sight of the new temple being built, the foundation being laid, it brought tears to the eyes for multiple reasons. For the younger generation, they get a temple again. They've heard stories about how beautiful the temple of Solomon was, but it was destroyed. And now they get to see a new one in their midst. While the older generation, they are disappointed because the rubble of the old temple is still there. The fact that they need to rebuild the temple reminds them of the failure of their people. Actually, this becomes such an issue that God sends the prophet Haggai to them. 
and he basically tells him to talk to the people who are discouraged by the temple and he encourages them not to give up, not to lose heart. He acknowledges that the new temple is not like the old one, but God's presence is still with them. He says, be strong. He reminds them of his faithfulness when he delivered them from Egypt and he says, my spirit is present among you. Do not be afraid. Even though things aren't like what they used to be, even though they're faced with the fact that they did fail, God says, I am still here. I am still with you. Be strong. Do not give up. God speaks to his people who are trying to rebuild from the destruction of their rebellion and disobedience. And he says, I am still with you and I am not done with you yet. Now remember, the Bible is for us. It's not about us. We have a lot we can glean from this, but we must acknowledge that these are real circumstances happening to real people. Here is what we can glean from this. God is still with us and working through each generation. Even if we're disappointed with what we see in our culture, I think a lot of us are seeing that today. It's easy to see that as generations change hands, culture and ethics and worldviews tend to change also. For generations that are passing on the baton, this can be very discouraging. I've heard many people tell me, I'm nervous for the next generation of the church. There's a lot of weird stuff they're going to have to face. We don't know what the future holds. And I'm a bit nervous. I'm a bit discouraged. And this is for good reason. But what we can take from this text is that even though things aren't the way they used to be, things aren't the way that we think they should be, God is still active and present. God is still going to be present with the next generation as he has been with this one. He might just be calling the previous one to strengthen the next generation, to encourage and to challenge them. This is not encouraging the next generation to make things the way they used to be. This is encouraging the next generation to seek God's presence always, to put him first. The people of God face the discouragement and disappointment of seeing the ruins of their temple. But God's reminder is that he is still here. He is still present and he is working his plan to completion. With this in mind, we'll see how the people of God seek to keep him at the center, even when there is a threat of opposition. When the people of God get to the ruins of Jerusalem, they prepared sacrifices to the Lord. They committed themselves to honoring the Lord with sacrifices. Actually, this is how Ezra puts it here. It says, They set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning. And this is Ezra 3.3. And evening. And on it, they prepared the offerings to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. See, the people of God were willing to honor God no matter who saw they realized that beforehand they compromised too much. That they let the other nations influence how they worship God or how they didn't worship him. And so this time they were going to sacrifice and worship God wide, right in the wide open no matter who saw. Because instead of fearing the people, they wanted to trust that God was still with them. They have a fresh memory of what it was like to not have God at the center. 
Later on in chapter 4, we see that they face opposition. It says that enemies come to stand against their work. And they oppose those trying to stop them. And it says that because they stand against their opposers. It says that uh, they bribe and they lie to city officials to keep the temple from being built. And this does end up discouraging them from building the temple. The book of Haggai shows us that God has to kind of spur his people on to keep building. And he reminds them, I am still with you. Be strong. And so they continue to rebuild. And at this point, there's a new king in Persia. Cyrus is gone. And we see uh, Darius. This is the same Darius in the book of Daniel. And when they ask what's going on, they see that they continue to, to build. They're like, weren't you told to stop? And they said, actually, Cyrus gave us a command to build. It was the king of Persia himself who said we could come and rebuild. And they encouraged Darius to go check the records. And he looks and he's like, actually, they're right. So give them whatever they need. They go from being opposed from the people of the land to having two royal decrees behind them. And it wasn't easy to obey God in the midst of opposition, but they did. They were willing to honor and praise God in their lives, no matter what the consequences were. And God honored this. Yes, they did fail. They let fear get in the way. They did stop. But God was patient and he encouraged them to keep going. God continued to walk with them and challenge them. Again, the Bible is for us, but it's not about us. So what can we learn from their story? We might not be rebuilding a temple while risking opposition, but we do risk opposition in other areas. We face it in our families when we, when we try to keep God at the center while the culture tries to tell us how our kids are supposed to live, how parenting is supposed to look like. We face it whenever we interact with unbelievers and we're scared to share what we believe in. We face opposition in most circumstances when we are trying to keep God at the center of our lives, but it is worth it. We might fail. We might be tempted to walk away, but God is with us and works with us as we fight to love him and keep him at the center. He is working in the background, even when we can't see it. And even when we're scared, we know that he is fulfilling his plan. He is faithful even when we face opposition. But now we're going to look at one more point. We're going to see how the people of God pursued God's presence through repentance. It's at this point, the people of God, they finished the temple. And this is when Ezra comes. He comes to teach the people God's law. In fact, it says that he was committed to knowing God's law and obeying it and teaching it to others. He gets to Jerusalem and he sees that they've already been living in rebellion. They have married foreign wives. Now this does not sound like a big deal to us, but this is because we're not in this culture. At this time, once you married someone of a different culture, you eventually included their practices, their gods into your life. This is actually part of what got them in trouble in the first place. Uh, King Solomon was a big uh, rule breaker in this part of God's law. They allowed the other cultures to get in the way of keeping God at the center, of obeying God and God alone. And here we see Ezra's response is a prayer of confession and repentance. This is what he says. And this is Ezra 9, 6 through 8. 
And I said, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face toward you. My God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens, our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until this present time. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over along with our kings and priests to the surrounding kings and to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in his holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. You see here, Ezra acknowledges the sin and rebellion. He says, Lord, we have been unfaithful. That's why we are in this situation in the first place. And he praises God for his grace because he knows it is undeserved. It is a gift from God. The fact that God has faithfully pursued his people even though they have rebelled. His presence is still there and readily available for anyone even if they fail. Even when they fall short, which we all do. After this, it shows that the people join Ezra. They realize their guilt and they confess and they ask for forgiveness. And this is where we must navigate the text very carefully. Because after this, it says that in response to their guilt, some of the families divorce. It says that they send away their foreign wives and children. Now let's make one thing clear. God does not command this from them. This is their personal response to their guilt and rebellion. They stopped at nothing to remove any possible chance for rebellion in their lives. This is not something that carries on beyond this circumstance. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, this is saying what they did in response. This is not saying this is how everyone should respond. On this side of the cross, we see what Paul says about marrying someone who doesn't believe. He, said, he encourages people not to, not because... Uh, they should divorce them afterwards, but because it will make life challenging. Because it's very hard for two to become one when they're going in opposite directions. And so he says, don't do it because you will make your life more challenging. But again, divorce is not encouraged. So with this being said, what can we glean from this? Because this seems a little odd. It shows us the principle of making sure nothing can keep us from seeking God's presence at the center of our lives. Again, please don't misunderstand. This is not a command to divorce uh, an unbelieving spouse. Actually, the book of Malachi says God hates divorce. And the only time we see that it's allowed is if there's extreme circumstances. That was their personal response to this context. So please don't go home and say, my pastor said, divorce is what God wants for me. That's not it, okay? We have to remember that these are real people in history attempting to navigate obedience to God. And sometimes they wrestle with it, like we do today. Rather, what we can apply is looking at our lives and asking, what do I allow to have a closer place in my heart and mind over God? That's a dangerous question because it can change our habits, hobbies, and daily living. What walls am I painting instead of reinforcing my foundation? If we truly ponder this question, we might be shocked at some of the basic things in our lives we tend to allow to take over our mind rather than God. 
I can't tell you how many students I've talked to encouraging them to uh, turn off their phone for a week and use that time to spend with God. And they have looked at me with this like, <laughs> like I just asked them to cut off an arm, right? It sounds so simple, but sometimes it's challenging when we've relied on it, when it's become just part of who we are. If we're honest with ourselves, these questions challenge us at pretty basic levels. Before we're ever even close to having to cut off friendships or changing careers even, there are some basic things that might need to be removed from our lives that can tend to get in the way of God. These kinds of questions put things like hunting and fishing. Sorry, okay. Vacations, reading TV, relationships, and many more items on the chopping block. These things are not bad. My wife and I just got back from a vacation and we loved it. But things can be a distraction. They're not bad in themselves, but we have to be honest in our evaluation of them. How much space do they have in our lives? And if God asked us to let them go, would we be willing to? Do we let them have more control over us than God does? That's the question we need to ask. This sounds drastic, but we know all too well that if we don't honestly evaluate these things, we can try to rationalize them. It's just a TV show. It was just an innocent conversation about that person's choices. What could possibly go wrong? And on and on it goes. See, God promises to be with his people, but do we pursue his presence no matter the cost? Or, we t or do we take it for granted, thinking that he'll be there when we get back from whatever else we pursue? These questions are not coming as judgment because we all do this. These questions are coming from a place of concern. Do we have the willingness to cut out anything that threatens to eclipse God? We have to ask the question, what comes first? What comes first for you? Is God present in our lives? Do we open our hearts and lives up for him to dwell in? Will we firm up our foundation or will we spend time painting the walls while the house is slowly falling apart? We must pursue God's presence in our lives. That is what we can learn from the book of Ezra. That's why it's temple first, walls later. They had to rebuild their devotion to God from the ruins of their rebellion. They went to extreme measures to keep God's presence in their lives because they knew all too well that once they start to compromise, they would never stop. Is he first for us? I know I'd like to say yes. And yet there are times I've found myself prioritizing things that are trivial in comparison to keeping God first. So if you have an Apple device, there's a cool and yet very disturbing feature. Uh, it's called screen time. It tells you exactly how you've been spending your time on your phone. Exactly how long you've spent on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, or how long you have spent on those games. And it can be a little disturbing when you realize just how much time you've wasted that week. And sometimes I wonder if we had a similar report for the amount of time we thought about something. What would it look like? Or maybe a more convicting question would be, would God make the first five things we thought about that week? As I wrote this, I was like, do I put it in there? I don't like it, which probably means I should put it in there. <laughs> 
This is more than simply going to church on Sunday. This is not about church attendance. This is, is God a daily thing in your lives? Do you invite him into every decision, every thought that you have? That is what it looks like for God to be present. If we measure this by church attendance, I think we're missing the point. Because there are more days than just Sunday. This is inviting God's presence into every conversation and activity. There are hobbies and activities that we can do while our minds are thinking about God. Again, I'm not bashing hobbies and activities and vacations. I love all of those things. But are we putting God first? We have to honestly evaluate if that's what we're truly doing. This is having family conversations about how we pursue God in a culture that does not consider him a priority. This is praying for our spouses to be exactly who God wants them to be, not who I think they should be. (laughs) Inviting God in does not mean we will become perfect. We will still experience disappointment, opposition, and disobedience. But it does mean that in the midst of those times, our hope is in the one who is always faithful and always present. And is always there when we need to run to him. Jesus told his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We also know that from our study in Acts, God's presence dwells within us through the power of his spirit. The choice is ours on whether or not we listen to that presence or we choose to walk away. God is always with us, but will we choose to lean in, to keep him at the center? The book of Ezra shows the people of God rebuilding the temple, seeking to make God the point again. The New Testament shows that we are the temple of God. We are the place that God's presence is supposed to dwell. Do we take that seriously? Do we seek to keep him there and to show him to others as well? Our call is to pursue God's presence no matter the cost. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that you are always present. Lord, I know from personal experience that I fail, that I don't keep you at the center, that I get distracted. Lord, and thank you that you are gracious in the fact that you are continually there. Lord, I pray for conviction, not shame. I pray for passion to keep you at the center. I pray that You help us look at what we have, at the things that we do, and weigh them honestly. Where do you fall in our priorities list? God, I pray that you help us as your community, as your gathering, as your church, to encourage and challenge one another to keep you at the center. Pray this all in your name. Amen.